welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, mother, and survivor. I work with competitive athletes and their families who are confronting abusive coaches. This podcast is for parents and athletes who are fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. Today is a bonus episode where I will discuss the charges that were filed against gymnastic coach John Geddard. In particular, I'll focus on the charge of human trafficking. From a legal perspective, the crimes, the institutional failures, and the impact on the victims of what John Getter did could be turned into a full law school course. This story about John Getter is a true criminal, societal, and cultural tragedy. And I intend to discuss the nuances of the charges. And I'll do that over three episodes. This will be a series. So today, on the first part one of this series, we'll look at that charge of human trafficking that was brought by Michigan State prosecutors. In the second part two, entitled Why So Long?, I'll attempt to marshal the evidence so that we can understand why the quote-unquote adults in the room or law enforcement agencies took so long to charge, arrest, and bring a prosecution against John Geddard. Part three in the final episode of the series, I'll report to you the results of a totally unscientific poll that I've taken where we'll ask members of the public and our listeners their opinion as to whether USAG and U.S. Center for State Sport, whether they were complacent, unaware of the abuse, or were they totally aware and they acted in concert with John Geddard. Now, for listeners who are not familiar with gymnastics coach John Geddard, here are just some points that will help you familiarize yourself. John Geddard was a former U.S. Olympic women's gymnastics coach and the owner of a Michigan gym called Twin Stars. Geddard coached the 2012 U.S. Olympic women's team at the London Games. He also was connected to child rapist Larry Nassar in a relationship, both personal and professional, that spanned over 20 years. Larry Nassar had an office and worked at the Twin Star Gym owned by Geddard. Geddard himself was a college gymnast, and he's worked with children since the early 1980s. He's worked in gyms in Rockville, Maryland, and to Lansing, Michigan. Geddard has been fired and individuals have complained about his coaching practices over the course of his career. These complaints have been not only from children, young gymnasts, but also from adults that he worked with and employed. It's been reported that there was one adult that worked at the gym that attempted to file charges in 2011 due to an alleged assault of the female employee by John Geddard. In that instance, prosecutors declined to move forward on the case. So that's John Geddard, or just a summary of his career and some of the points that will help you become familiar with him. And before we get into discussing the human trafficking charge that was brought by Michigan State prosecutors by the Attorney General there in particular, I just have a couple of reminders. I hope that you enjoy the show, but remember the contents are never a substitute for contacting and speaking directly with a licensed attorney who knows and understands your unique circumstances. Past shows can be found on my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com. When you visit the website, be sure to have a look around. There's additional information there 
that will help answer your questions. Also, sign up for the monthly newsletter. You can do that by leaving your name and email address. And if you're ready to speak confidentially with an attorney, you can also leave your name there or call directly the office at 212-709-8141. Don't forget to share the show with a friend or family member who can benefit from what we're talking about. Please hit the subscribe button and don't forget to leave a rating and review. So let's begin. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel announced charges against John Geddard this past week. It was Thursday, February 25th, I believe the charges were announced. And those charges included over 20 counts of criminal conduct. It ranged from the human trafficking, sexual assault, forced labor, racketeering, lying to police. Today, we're going to focus on the 14 counts, 14 counts for human trafficking, in particular, the subsection of that penal code statute that dealt with forced labor that caused injury. There was also six counts of human trafficking that specifically spoke to a minor being forced into labor. Respectively, those charges were all felonies carrying 15 years or more in prison. What are the basis of the human trafficking charges so that we have an understanding? According to the attorney general in Michigan, the charges were based on allegations that Geddard had used his position as a USA Gymnastics coach to sexually, physically, emotionally, and verbally abuse minors. The counts that spoke to the human trafficking were based on Geddard forcing children to perform gymnastics. There was punitive conditioning, excessive training for no type of real exercise purpose, no type of training or gymnastic athletic goal, but instead the excessive training was done for the purpose of causing bodily harm, physical injury, and that Geddard had done these acts traveling across state lines using threats of harm, abuse, fear, and intimidation. So that was the basis for bringing those charges. Human trafficking, those are serious charges. And You wouldn't expect to see those associated with a complaint, with an indictment, a charging document that's going to abuses by a coach. So that's unique in that circumstance. And that's why I thought that it was important to talk to the listeners about the seriousness of what John Geddard had done and the courageousness of the prosecutors in this case by looking and finally deciding to bring charges outside of just the normal physical, psychological, you know, emotional abuse, and really finding that Geddard had engaged in traveling across state lines, using harm, abuse, fear, and intimidation, and forced labor on these young girls. The decision that prosecutors make to bring a particular crime to look at the factual allegations and to decide what is being charged is a serious one. And they discuss what they can prove at all points in a trial. As a general definition and understanding, let's look at the charge of human trafficking. Under Michigan law, and there's different information out there, some of the research that I saw, here's a general understanding of how that state looks at human trafficking. It's a form of 
slavery, where people profit from the control and exploiting other. The crime occurs when the trafficker uses force, fraud, or coercion to control another person. And that's exactly what the prosecutor said that there were allegations to support, that Geddard had engaged in forcing, coercing, and threatening young children to get them to perform. It's using uh, force and intimidation for labor or services against the person's will, so against these gymnasts' will. Victims in Michigan State and in other states, but of course we're talking about Michigan, the victim can be both children and adults. So that's a general sense of what human trafficking is under the law. Now, in this case, the prosecutors, they did issue a statement and they said that their decision to charge Geddard with human trafficking were based on some of the following. There was evidence, and the prosecutor would intended to prove this, that Geddard had subjected the girls to forced labor, that the forced labor was done under extreme conditions. And these conditions contributed to the gymnasts suffering their injuries and their harm. And then Geddard went further. He neglected their injuries when they were reported to him. And further, he used coercion, intimidation, threats, and also physical force to get the girls to perform. Prosecutors understand that they have to present a factual basis when they're going to bring a charge. And that charge would appear in indictment or another complaint. That's the charging document. And prosecutors understand that the charge that they bring, it has to survive attacks. It has to survive scrutiny at different levels over the course of a prosecution. So, for example, the first attack or scrutiny, so to speak, that a prosecutor's charge would have to, would face, would be at a first court appearance or sometimes called an arraignment. Again, the complaint or the charge could face scrutiny during, over the, so say if you make it, the charge is not dismissed at that first arraignment. The charge can also, so in Getter's case, it could have faced scrutiny over the entire duration of the case. The opposing counsel who stands opposite of the prosecutor may have brought a later motion to dismiss or could have sought to attack the charge at trial. So I'm saying this to say the prosecutors have to find a level of confidence and insurance that when they bring a charge, they have the facts and they have the law to support it. Prosecutors will bring these charges because they've relied and they've done work to interview both victims, witnesses, and and their understanding of the theory of the case. And they use those to support the charge. Prosecutors are mindful that these counts will be scrutinized, not only, as I was saying before, at a first appearance or later in the case, but they can also be scrutinized at a preliminary hearing or a grand jury where you have individuals of the public coming together in a grand jury proceeding to listen to the charges. It's the first kind of, it's not a trial jury, it's a grand jury, but it's the first kind of obstacle that a prosecutor would have to overcome when they're charging an individual with a serious crime. So with that in mind, prosecutors have to have a level of confidence that a charge that they're bringing will withstand attack. And it's notable and it's important. 
prosecutors in the John Geddard case knew and felt confident in bringing and charging him with human trafficking. Now, in particular, let's look at the specific human trafficking charge under Michigan state law. And he was charged with several counts of the human trafficking. One dealt specifically with forced labor that resulted in injury. And the count read something like this. Each count would have, there would be a separate human trafficking charge for each victim. So I'm just going to give you a general sense as to what the count read in their charging document, their complaint. So it would have said that on or about the year 2010 to 2013, John Geddard, he knowingly subjected or attempt to subject another person, and that person would have been namely one of the gymnasts, forced them into labor or service by causing or threatening to cause physical harm to the gymnast, another person, and it caused another person personal injury. So that's how the charge would have read. And like I said, there were several of those counts, one relating to each victim. With the filing of these human trafficking charges, it was evident, it's evident to me and it's clear that finally after so many years of investigating John Geddard, law enforcement and the judicial system, they had finally warmed up to the idea of holding this coach accountable for abuse. Now, I'll stop here because part of the backstory and what we'll deal with part two of this series is asking the question, why so long? What took so long for law enforcement to, like I said, warm up to the idea, gather the evidence, whatever it is, we're going to talk about why it took so long to finally hold John Geddard or try to hold him accountable for the abuse of minors. Over the years, survivors, these gymnasts who had worked, trained under John Geddard, there's reports that they were frustrated, they felt hopeless, that Geddard would never be charged, and that the endangerment that he had placed these children in, you know, that there would never be any charges brought because of what he had done. So, you know, it's it's interesting that finally there was some type of charge and it's notable again that the charge amounted to human trafficking. USA Today reported that one of the gymnasts, Lindsay Limke, who trained under Geddard, so this is kind of what she thought. She said that she thought she would never see the day that Geddard would get charged and that she had thought that he would get away with manipulating and abusing children. Ms. Lemke went on to say, I don't know how someone can get away with these things for so long. We know that Ms. Lemke would not see, she will not see Geddard appear in court. She and other survivors will never have an opportunity to testify, or even if Geddard was found guilty, they won't have that opportunity to speak in open court to read a victim impact statement. And why? Because we now know that Geddard killed himself while en route to surrender to police. He was driving himself to surrender. So it appears to be the end of this story, but it really isn't. It really speaks and to the subject matter of part two of our discussion in this series on Geddard. And we're going to talk about 
why it took so long. As a preview to part two, these are some of the things that we'll discuss. And I want us to continue the conversation on Facebook. Why? Why was John Geddard allowed to turn himself in? Why wasn't he arrested and removed from his home, from his business, or even taken off the street? Why was Geddard given the courtesy of driving himself to the police station? Is that courtesy another example of male privilege, of white male privilege that's inherent in a broken and in our institutional systems? This privilege of John Geddard, and that's what I'm calling it, a privilege, was that privilege, that benefit of the doubt given to the women and the girls that complained over and over again for years? Was that privilege given to them where they listened? <laughs> John Geddard, he was allowed to turn himself in of his own volition, not to, you know, not to have the police come and get him. Instead, He was allowed one last decency, that decency of the ability to drive himself to the police station. He didn't have to suffer that last embarrassment of being apprehended and detained and handcuffed by the law enforcement in front of his family or on the street. No, he was given a last decency and a courtesy. But where was the courtesy for the girls and the women? Where was the benefit of the doubt that should have been given to them? when they talked about the physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. Now, I personally, I know from working with low-income wage earners and people of color without wealth or access, that they're not given that same courtesy of turning themselves in, especially if they're facing charges as serious as human trafficking, trafficking children, forced labor, sexual violence, abuse of minors, with penalties that carry life in prison. I can't recall many clients, low-income earners or people of color, that were given that courtesy of turning themselves in. Instead, this is what I've seen. Those individuals without financial means or African-Americans, Latin Americans who are charged with horrible crimes, they're many times, they're forced to do what's called a perp walk. Now, if you don't know what a perp walk is, here's what it is. It's a practice where law enforcement intentionally parades a person who's been charged with a serious crime in front of the media, and it's done to elicit public outrage against the accused. It's done to humiliate, shame, and degrade the accused. In this case, John Geddard wasn't subject to a perp walk. No, he was allowed to drive in the comfort of his car and ultimately decide how he would end his case. Here's the one thing, though. Based on my work in the criminal justice system, I sincerely believe that John Geddard did not live in a state of comfort or peace, but instead he only knew fear, and it appears that he finally died in disgrace. To the survivors, Ms. Lemke, the other women and girls, to their families and their parents, who were injured by John Geddard. We see your pain. We send you love. We validate your suffering. We wish you only the best. We wish you healing and clarity as you move forward. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the show. And I'll see you back here soon.
All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.